Starting out, though, and this is following up on the news released yesterday, as you know, new restrictions in place dealing with in-person dining, in-person worship, uh, other restrictions, Whistler Blackcomb shut down until April 19th. Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday saying that because of the numbers and the way things were going, we need this circuit breaker. Well, joining me on the line now to talk more about this is Caroline Colane, SFU professor and Canada 150 research chair in mathematics for infection, evolution and public health. Thanks so much for being back on the show. Good afternoon. Uh, Is this actually a circuit breaker or is it more of just a few more restrictions and changes? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, you know, there will be transmission chains that will be broken by this, I'm sure. And so that's great. So for those those chains, it breaks the circuit. But I think, you know, we have to remember in November we had new restrictions introduced for a period of two weeks. And that happened, you know, there there was some slight relaxation in outdoor gatherings uh, very recently. But otherwise, that has been in place the whole time. We will not all be vaccinated in three weeks' time. We will not have reduced COVID down to tiny numbers where we can kind of reopen and close the borders like a a COVID zero or shield strategy. So it is good to break the circuit. We'll see where we are in three weeks, but I don't think anything fundamentally will have changed that will be different in three weeks in terms of allowing lots of reopening. Is it also, do you think, because uh, coming off spring break, we know that people did travel and there was mingling, uh, probably more than health officials would like uh, to have seen. Is it knowing that we're probably going to be seeing numbers from that time period and by having this uh, circuit breaker, by having these uh, restrictions in place, at least it might kind of stem the tide once we've dealt with that? I hope so. I mean, cases that we see reported as as positive today were infected maybe a week ago, at least uh, sometimes longer, depending how the testing is working and when people seek a test. So I don't think this is, you know, completely separate from spring break. But I also think, you know, we knew that variants had a higher transmission rate. So we knew that if our, our number was one, people infecting on average one of their contacts, then a new strain that comes in that is better at transmission you will on average infect more than one of your contacts and it will grow. So it might be that people relaxed more over spring break, um, but it, it's not required. We, we knew that higher transmission rates would very likely drive increased case numbers, even if we kept doing exactly the same things that we'd been doing since November. Uh, that's an interesting point because I think that's where there was some confusion in that all along the messaging has been the reason that restaurants and pubs are staying open is because uh, with wearing masks, with having plexiglass dividers, with having distancing, these were very safe places and there wasn't transmission. Whereas now we have the inside dining shut down and a lot of people I know yesterday were saying, well, what changed if we were doing this and it was working? What changed? Is it the variants? So I don't know, you know, we don't have data on exactly how many of the new cases are variant cases by day. So and we don't know um, or the public you know, doesn't know whether variant cases are particularly restaurant, you, you know, in other in other jurisdictions. I don't think there's anything to say there are special restaurant strains that are better at restaurants. What we do know is they're better at transmission. So where we were kind of on the knife edge before and sure, maybe on average, there weren't big clusters in restaurants. Now we have variants of COVID that are better at transmission, and they're going to be better at the same things COVID does, indoor transmission in social settings with lower ventilation, without masks, where people are talking and and drinking and dining and singing and gathering. And, you know, those indoor gatherings of any kind, they can be workplaces, they can be social, uh, they can be households. You know, higher transmission rate is probably higher, you know, without additional information, it's probably higher in 
lots of those places. And it doesn't mean we necessarily changed what we did and that drove it. I think maybe that may have driven some of it. We, I don't know that it isn't the case. But higher transmission rate means getting more of your contacts. And that's, you know, I think, unfortunately, we that's established here now. And when we're going to we're going to struggle to deal with it in, lot, in lots of Canada, not just in B.C. Uh, I think it was the last time we talked, you had talked about or put out uh, the, the idea that it is younger people who are perhaps working in restaurants, working in grocery stores, working a lot of the frontline jobs, uh, maybe living with roommates, living in scenarios where they are more exposed and, and exposed to this virus. And the idea of maybe that's who we should be looking at as far as vaccine and as far as stopping this. Uh, yesterday, mm-hmm. the premier pretty much threw them all under the bus and said, don't blow it for the rest of us. Uh, do you think it would be a good idea if we did focus vaccination on that age group? Um, I think, sure, in modeling, what we looked at, we did look at age groups and we did find uh, younger, sooner vaccination strategies can reduce transmission. Then we focused more on, you know, even even more than just all younger people, in particular, people who have to have high rates of contact at work. And we did find there's an even better advantage for vaccinating them first. And that's basically because of this. So suppose you're you're 60 or, or some older age group who, and you're not one of the, the high contact, high risk or essential workers. And you think to yourself, what's better than having a vaccine in, say, seven weeks time? Well, one of the things that's, that's better than that is having that vac- same vaccine in nine weeks time, so a little later, but in those intervening weeks, having much less risk of exposure. So that's the, the, the whole story kind of you prevent transmission that means you prevent transmission and you prevent bad effects in the exact people that you vaccinate. But if you can prevent that in the people who are at risk of exposure and transmission, you can prevent lots of other exposures, too. So not just the one, but many more. So that covers, you know, even if we just went with younger people sooner, but even better if we go with trying to find people who are at high risk of being exposed. I think it brings up a good point, too, that, you know, there's always a temptation to sort of don't blow this for the rest of us. Don't party. You know, going to work is not partying and living in a larger household is not partying. And, um, you know, essential workers, people with high contact have have borne the brunt of the exposures here. So that's kind of another part of the picture, I think. And when you mention that too, or do that scenario then again with the 60 year old, because then is the idea then if the 60 year old say is going to the grocery store once a week, but the 20 year old is working at the grocery store five days a week, does it make more sense to vaccinate the 20 year old? Exactly. Because there are maybe 160 year olds who go to that grocery store once a week or, you know, lots of other people of, you know, there's nothing special about 60, maybe 70 or 68 or 59 or whatever. So by protecting that 20-year-old, you're not just protecting the 20-year-old, you're protecting a whole community around them. And that's the logic that BC has used in thinking about vaccinating high-contact, high-risk workers. And I hope that will continue, even though the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine will change probably based on recent guidelines. But even if you, you only have the mRNA vaccine, and actually even especially if you have very few doses you want to make the most effective use of those doses that you possibly can. And so using them to help reduce transmission, along with maybe we need more closures, along with maybe we need broader testing and other tools from the toolkit. Yeah, I think it's a really smart choice. I hope BC continues to make it. With the scenario we're in now, with this three-week, uh, and again, I'll use the, the term circuit breaker, um, what is our best case scenario? What do you think we are looking for as far as numbers in three weeks' time? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I think that, um, you know, we know these higher transmission rates are strong enough that we would need, at least in the models, we would need very strong restrictions, you know, more severe even than we did last March to really contain and really stop transmission if widespread distancing and lockdowns were were the main tool that we were using. Hopefully we can bring that, that tool, you know, we haven't closed everything down. We've closed more things down. Hopefully we can combine that with really strategic vaccination, maybe with more rapid testing, maybe with wider testing, maybe with some geographically more, you know, more, more restricted lockdowns. Maybe we don't want to lock down the entire province. Um, maybe we want to do that more selectively um, and bring those tools together and hopefully see that, that we're able to contain this. All right, uh, Caroline, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks again so much for coming back on the show. Thank you. Well, as you know, restaurants, pubs, other places that have outdoor spaces are looking at expanding patios, trying to find ways to make money to uh, still have customers and to still have money coming in, especially during this three-week circuit breaker lockdown, where in uh, dining inside has been prohibited. Some have been questioning why this was a regional approach and that it goes uh, throughout the entire province of BC rather than, say, harder hit areas, areas with higher numbers of COVID-19. Dr. Bonnie Henry has said in the past, uh, because she doesn't want to see people leaving one area, going to another area where there aren't the same restrictions. But it does make it difficult, especially for places where perhaps the weather is not as warm as it is here on the South Coast. So we wanted to check back in with Danielle Eaton, the owner of the Kootenai Soul Food in Cranbrook. And Danielle is with us on the line once again. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me again. How are things going? <laughs> we're reacting quickly. Um, we're doing our best. We're also losing money very quickly. Uh, we have already seen sales drop by 80% immediately. That's a big drop. It's a huge drop. I know everybody, we have a ton of people who are saying, well, just you know, push takeout, but you can't push takeout in the same capacity and, you know, people want the dining experience. And so it's hurting us. We're having to pivot. We are doing exactly what you said. We're trying to find ways to immediately put up patio space in downtown where <laughs> what we have is a sidewalk possibly. Um, it's, it's becoming very challenging. And I think that the decision was incredibly unfair for so many reasons. And talk a bit about that, because how are things going uh, to as far as the numbers where you are uh, in Cranbrook? Yeah, so in the East Kootenays, we have kind of a census population in our area of about 80,000. Uh, currently have seven cases, which is less than one 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 thousandth of a percent. <laughs> um, and that's cases. That's not hospitalization like that. That's the full picture. And that's so frustrating that we're being painted with the same brush as other communities when we have invested so much into advocating safe practices and our numbers prove it's working. Have you had any cases that you know of that are linked to your establishment? No, definitely not. And if if we thought there might be, then I would absolutely um, be more concerned. But we have been so diligent our, our protocols, our cleaning protocols, our, our janitorial has gone up for 400% over prior years. So we're putting a lot of effort, um, labor into clean. Everybody 
who dines with us talks about our space. We have, we have gone down to 16 tables and 16 tables is just enough to keep us going. And now we're reduced to having nothing. And it's, it's incredibly unfair. Public Health Canada, the public health agency, they've published the numbers. Restaurants, there, are, there have been three deaths in Canada from COVID connected to restaurants in 12 months. And so the, the case count for restaurants across Canada in the last 12 months is significantly lower than schools industrial settings, um, long-term healthcare, healthcare in general. And so I do not understand why we're being, I feel, targeted. What do you say to when, when this question is put to Dr. Bonnie Henry, the provincial health officer, one of her concerns is if it's not a region-wide approach, if some places are left open while others are forced to close, it's going to drive people to go there. Uh, what do you say to that? In that, I, I guess the idea would be that you would suddenly have all of these people from Metro Vancouver showing up at your restaurant. I, I laugh. If, if somebody is actually going to make the journey from Vancouver to my restaurant, um, specifically to eat at my restaurant. I mean, kudos to us because we must have an amazing reputation. Um, I, people are coming here anyway. We have ski resorts. We know that Kelowna, Vancouver, Alberta, they're still coming whether we're open for dining or we're takeout. Um, that never stopped. Our ski hills have been packed. Our hotels have been packed. It didn't stop, and yet our numbers are still low. And so it doesn't make sense to me to have the regional approach. Um, you know, Castle Gar, just around the corner, I think they've had three cases in their community in the entire year and their restaurants are getting shut down. Um, that makes absolutely no sense to me. And so I feel like logic is starting to go out the window. I understand that there are outbreaks, but I don't for a moment believe that people are going to travel to an entire, re- you know, an entire region over, and let's face it, we're a fair distance from the next region. We're quite isolated into the mountains. Um, I, I don't believe that for a moment. It just lacks logic. And forgive me, I forget, where's the closest ski hill then? And I would imagine, so yeah. I know we heard yesterday that Whistler Blackcomb has to close as part of this, but is that, where's the closest ski hill to you? And, and is that still open? Yeah, so we've got uh, the Kimberly Alpine Resort, an RCR resort. They're 20 minutes away. And then we have Fernie, um, Fernie Alpine Resort, another RCR. And they are about 45 minutes away. And no, they're not closing because we haven't had case count. <laughs> we haven't had issues. Fernie had a small blip. Um, they advocated the whole medical community jumped on board and said let's quiet things down let's reduce things let's be diligent they did it themselves back down to zero no problem and that's the beauty of being in small areas if we see that there's an issue we adjust we rally we correct and we're being judged completely unfairly has there been any scenario or any point during the pandemic where you've had, say, people from uh, out of province or uh, even even not just next door, not in Alberta, say from from Quebec? We've had people, we've seen people from Quebec coming to other uh, ski mountains in in BC. Have have there been any scenarios where there have been people who have come to visit, say they're at the Kimberley Resort, and then they're coming to your restaurant that you're feeling a bit uneasy, or are you are you confident with the protocols? 
Oh, yeah. We have never felt uncomfortable. We are diligent. Um, and I think that goes for our entire industry and um, our businesses in general in the area. We're not concerned about people coming into our area because we know it's up to us to be diligent. Someone can come into our restaurant, no different than, and I'm, I'm not saying it's the flu or cold, but you know, we've always protected our staff from illness because we don't want to be having our staff taking time off or being ill. Um, we can do the same here. And so, and we've done it infinitely with more stronger protocols. So I'm not terribly concerned about people coming from out of area because when they come in, they have to sanitize their hands. We have, you know, when you're exiting to go to the hallway to go to the washroom, you have to sanitize your hands before you go into the washroom. You have to sanitize after you come out of the washroom. Like we've, and that's standard in our area. And so it doesn't make sense. It's going to cost us thousands of dollars to put up a patio, uh, which that in itself makes me laugh because people are still going to be dining together, people, whether they're on the patio outside. We know that households are crossing, you know, one another. They're coming in as multi-household tables. Um, that's not changing. They're just going to go do it somewhere else now in a less sanitized and controlled area. <laughs> What's the weather like there? What's the temperature like there as far as even being outside and being on a patio? <laughs> it's cold. <laughs> um, Fernie, so we, we all just got snow again. Fernie just got 12 inches. I mean, hallelujah, fun on the mountain. All of Alberta is going to be coming over. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's cold. It's not patio weather. So we're also, you know, we've been working with um, the local Sandor Rentals because we're like, hey, can we get heaters? because we're going to need them for at least another six weeks. Right. And is that going to work out, do you think? <laughs> I sure hope so. <laughs> Otherwise, my restaurant might be under in a good few months. Um, I've told my staff I refuse to lay them off. I'm not playing this game. Um, we're just going to push. We're going to fight. Um, I've lost complete faith in the decision-making process. I know our local MLAs, our mayor and council, I'm not the only one who's losing patience, and I'm really losing patience. Um we don't feel that we don't feel that we should be subject to the same restrictions as areas that are seeing a higher percentage of cases. Which is what we're seeing in other parts of Canada, more of um, a not a wide sweeping approach for a, a whole province or a whole, a whole area, more of a regional and looking yeah. exactly like you said, looking at the numbers. Uh, are you, so are you hearing that? Are, are there other politicians or elected officials that are going to continue pushing for this? I think so. I think our community, we're the type who we rally. And um, I, I'm really hoping that a strong voice and a strong approach happens over the next few days, um, because it, it is, it's getting, it's becoming frustrating. Um, I wish I could be more articulate right now, but I think that just goes to show the level of emotion I have about this. Um, I'm frustrated. And I hope that people start voicing their frustration. And I know that Mayor Pratt did this morning loud and clear. Um, he is incredibly unimpressed that our community, after being so diligent, is being subject to these restrictions. It's going to hurt us. All right. We'll follow up with this for sure. Danielle, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I appreciate the platform. 
Thanks for being with us. Well, yesterday when we were talking about the fact that in-house dining has been suspended, it has been uh, not allowed, will not be allowed until at least April 19th. Restaurants, pubs, other establishments uh, will be trying to make their patio space bigger, get more people that they can keep the doors open, keep paying their staff. I was thinking about that and then also thinking about the stories and uh, anecdotal, but I think we can agree a lot of people uh, became dog friendly during the pandemic. People who are working from home brought dogs into their households. And wouldn't it be great if restaurant owners were allowed to decide if they wanted to allow dogs on part or all of their patios? So we wanted to bring in Rebecca Bretter, animal rights lawyer at Bretter Law to talk a bit more about this. And she is on the line with us now. Thanks for being here. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. We've had this conversation a few times uh, pre-pandemic as well. What is it you think that is the biggest obstacle? Because it does happen in other jurisdictions. What is the biggest obstacle for restaurant owners or pub owners or anyone with a patio uh, from allowing dogs on that patio? Well, right now, the biggest obstacle is that there are so many people with dogs, even probably more so than there have been pre-COVID. And people are staying home with their dogs, and they can't go anywhere really with their dogs, um, like if they want to go shopping and that. Or or if they do, what I often see, which is a huge no-no, I hate saying this, is when people tie up their dogs, like outside of the grocery stores or outside of restaurants or like pubs that have outdoor patios. They tie them outside or restaurants tying them outside. And that's just a recipe for disaster. I know people often think that, oh, no, but my dog's good. He's not He's not going to do anything to someone else. But all it takes is that one incident where there's another dog that approaches your dog when your dog's tied up, even if it's just for literally like a minute and there's something that happens between the two dogs and then your dog ends up injuring another dog or another person. And then that doesn't end well for the people's dogs. So right now, the biggest obstacle is that people are feeling like, oh, crap, I I adopted a dog or bought a dog during the pandemic, and I'm quite limited in where I can go. So I think that needs to change. I think, you know, just look at Europe. They're so progressive in not everywhere, but in, in many countries like Belgium, France, Finland, Italy, like there's a whole bunch of them that allow dogs not only in uh, sorry not only outside on their patios but actually inside the restaurants and i realize some people are going to think ooh i don't want to sit next to a dog like what if the dog you know pees or does something else but that doesn't i mean that it's not that it never happens i'm sure it does the same way as a, a kid next to you pukes on the parents or on the floor you know that happens but generally speaking things are okay and they will be okay i think we have to be progressive and open minded and realize that companion animals are here to stay and not only are they here to stay but they are a growing there's a growing number of them with an increasing number uh for canadians across the country like 32% of canadians uh, or dog guardians. Wow, that's a lot of people. Uh, and and for anybody that's cringing at the idea of uh, the dogs coming right into the cafes and the restaurants, fear not. We're, we're talking baby <laughs> steps here. We're talking yeah. about outdoor uh, areas only at this point. Um, what would what stops yeah. restaurants and pubs? So is it because uh, every time we've looked into this, this this before, it's been councils say no, no, it's the health authority. The health authority. It's there's no one. It seems that really wants to take full responsibility and in, in saying that it is this regulation that means you cannot yeah. do this. 
Yeah, that's a very good observation, Jill. It kinda, everyone kind of likes pointing their finger somewhere else because they don't want to be the bad guy to say no. The reality is it is kind of a, um, a, mixed, a, a mixed regulation. You have the health authorities that are mixed into this together with, uh, with city business licensing authorities, together with just general laws around dogs. And I think the reluctance so far has been that no one wants to take that first step, right? They're scared. They want to see, well, let's, let's let that restaurant try and see how that goes. But I, and I think some of the concern there is liability, right? Liability, probably a mix of liability and, and scaring off customers who don't want to sit next to a dog or, you know, next to a couple of dogs, whatever. But there's still the statistics speak for themselves. There really is a growing number of people with dogs and businesses have to adapt to that reality, whether they like it or not. And I think it'll just increase their revenue if they are up with the times, you know, get on with it and, and, and try it out. And of course, I mean, when I say that, you obviously have to, you can't do that in Vancouver now, but Maple Ridge, do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So after we reached out to just talk generally about this with you, uh, we got this email from Maple Ridge saying they're going ahead with a pilot project to try Mm -hmm. this. Uh, It sounds like they've, they're already, they're, they're taking the dog ball and running with it. Yeah, when Ben, when your producer Ben sent that to me this morning, I actually didn't didn't know about it until Ben sent it to me, and oh my gosh, it's amazing! So it's a partnership between the city of Maple Ridge and the Downtown Maple Ridge Business Improvement Association and the Chambers of Commerce for Maple Ridge and Pet Meadows. And what they've done is they're putting together a program where um, they got some funding, it sounds like, from the provincial government or federal government. I'm not too sure. Uh, I think the provincial government. And they're encouraging businesses to apply, all businesses, so anything from restaurants, pubs, to retail stores, to apply and be part of this program where they could get some funding for marketing material, um, contests for like um, pet-friendly premises, and to allow their patrons to come into their stores or not in the restaurants, especially now with their clothes, but outside on patios with their dogs. And they're essentially trying to make it a dog-friendly, an even more dog-friendly, I should say, area to not only live, but to visit and to do business in. It's amazing. Uh, and I get the part with uh, patios and restaurant patios, places where dogs really aren't allowed right now. So there would probably need to be some kind of change, whether it's a bylaw change or it's a health authority change. And then a restaurant owner and, and for people who might be flipping out because they don't like dogs. I, I, no one is suggesting <laughs> they have to be allowed. To, but it's the idea that the business owner can decide, are you going to have a dog area? Are you going to allow dogs? Are you not going to allow dogs? Uh, but when we're talking about businesses, as much as I applaud what Maple Ridge is doing. Uh, do we really need to reinvent the wheel? I mean, biz- businesses allow dogs now. I take my dog to Bed Bath & Beyond. I take my dog to Canadian Tire, to uh, the nail salon, to other places, to winners. Dogs are allowed. Could they not just put up their own stickers and allow dogs in? Well, I think it depends. I think some of those places that you mentioned, I think they're taking a chance. They're not necessarily legally allowed, but who's going to complain? So they're not necessarily, I, I, I think it depends on, on the area, but there are some places where they're allowed or people, I think the reality is people are just not going to complain. So I think restaurants have it a little bit harder because you do have the health authorities involved and, uh, and they have to make sure that they're complying with the health and safety 
um, regulations that that are under the health authorities' uh, power. But the same for stores too, right? Like they have to make sure that they're abiding by by safety precautions. So, and I think also fundamentally, I think this comes down to yeah, obviously the law, but but also common sense. And and I think businesses do have insurance, and if something does happen, insurance will likely cover it. But I just don't think realistically that they even have to be so concerned about about liability. Generally speaking, people who bring dogs with them are responsible and their dogs are okay. And we should just go ahead and open things up to dogs. <laughs> Generally speaking, you're right. But there is always going to be the one owner who ruins it or who doesn't yeah. have control, thinks their dog is a little angel. The dog is yeah. not a little angel. So how do you deal with bad owners? Well, you'll always have that one a-hole who tries, well, maybe not tries, but ruins it for, for everyone else. And they will, just like whenever anything else that's wrongful happens, those people will be dealt with according to the law, whether that means being fined, whether it means, you know, what, what dog guardians really have to be concerned about and mindful of is that Maple Ridge and almost, well, Many cities in British Columbia have animal control bylaws where if their dog causes any type of injury or even the bylaws use the words harass and some of them like, what the heck does that mean? But basically, if someone feels threatened by your dog, your dog could be labeled as quote unquote aggressive or quote unquote dangerous. And that has huge implications for dog guardians. So dog guardians have to be mindful that they have to be responsible with their dogs. You know, I don't have to preach about this, but they have to be responsible with their dogs and know their dogs. Like if you know, if you just adopted a dog and you're not sure if they're good with strangers, don't take them to an outdoor patio. Just don't. Common sense right there. Uh, Rebecca, <laughs> we'll leave it there and we'll be following along to see uh, what happens in Maple Ridge uh, if other cities, municipalities follow along. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Joe. Thanks so much for being with us. Talking a little bit more about a story uh, from yesterday, but it is certainly getting a lot of criticism. And take a listen to just this short clip uh, from Justin Kulik, a former NDP candidate. I believe the youngest NDP candidate. Uh, he was speaking with Mike Smith earlier today. Not just uh, considering vaccines, but, but throughout this entire pandemic, it's been young people that have been particularly hit hard. Right? We, we've yeah. been hit by job losses, education, our mental health. Uh, but we're we're still working the front lines in grocery stores, restaurants, retail, delivery drivers. Right. Uh, so so it, it is young people who who are being told, hey, thank you for being essential workers, but also smarten up because somehow, uh, without data to back it up, we're going to point a finger at you. Right. All right, that uh, was just part of that conversation. Let's bring in Heidi Torek, Associate Professor of International History and Public Policy at UBC. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, what is your response to uh, the, to what the reaction we're getting to that and to the comment itself, the Premier singling out that younger age group saying, don't blow it for the rest of us? It concerns me as, as a comment because it, it unintentionally falls into something that, that I and, and lots of others who work in this field like Judy Marks have said is really problematic, which is the blame game, right? If we start blaming a certain group of people for the number of cases, et cetera, et cetera, there are all sorts of potential consequences that can follow from that. One is the, the backlash we've been seeing over the last 24 hours 
But the other is also that it really will discourage young people from wanting to get tested because they feel they'll be shamed if they have COVID and will potentially make them less likely to participate in contact tracing. And then overall, in the long run, that's really going to undermine the efforts to get COVID under control. So it's not just the offhand comment, it's also the, the sorts of ways in which we see with other diseases, these kinds of shaming and blame games actually really undermine our public health efforts. Uh, and a lot has been said as well about the fact that there isn't really the data to back up the claim. Right. I think it, it's in part because um, it seems such a reversal from what uh, Premier Horgan was saying a couple of weeks ago, saying that we were on the right track. And, and that's precisely right about the data, because as with all sorts of other people who have contracted COVID, there's speculation. But in reality, what we need is the data to know, for example, is this spread happening through uh, illicit parties or is it happening through this age group being the ones most likely to be different forms of essential workers who are going to be most potentially exposed to COVID. And without that data, it's quite hard for us to um, make an assertion about um, what is going on within that age group precisely and, and why it is that we're seeing so many cases there. And what about the messaging itself in that, like you just referenced, we heard uh, just a couple of weeks ago, the premier saying we were on the right track. We keep hearing about the being in the final stretches, that there is hope ahead of us. Uh, We're told there isn't transmission at restaurants. Now there's no dining in restaurants. We're told there isn't transmission on the ski hill. Now Whistler Blackcomb is closed. closed. What about that kind of what is perceived as really mixed messaging? I think it can certainly create some some confusion and maybe a sense of of whiplash for people. And and ideally, what we want to do is is lay out for people the the spectrum of possibilities, right? There's always a great deal of uncertainty in uh, public health, right? Because it depends on individual behaviors. Do you end up getting a a cluster for various reasons? Of course, there's always a great deal of uncertainty. But I think maybe laying out for people, listen, here's what we're looking out for. Um, Here's the way that things might change um, so that what happened yesterday wouldn't come as a surprise for those who aren't avidly tuning into press conferences like I am, who are living their lives and seeing restaurants open so I can go with my household and then suddenly feel quite shocked that things have, have changed. So I think just giving people a bit of a sense of what are the potential paths that, that public health officials see, why is it and what would they do actually if we're heading down you know, this path of more cases versus cases staying the same, that might have helped prepare people for the fact that this moment is coming, particularly for those who just you know, aren't really interested in looking at the daily case counts every day. They, they go to their job and they do their thing and all of a sudden they feel really sort of smacked around the head by this change in direction. And in, in looking at that group as well, and it's a pretty big group if you're talking about people from the age 20 to 39. Uh, and again, not everybody's tuning in when the news conferences are live, when they happen at 3 p.m. Uh, does something like this, though, so that then it's going to be, it's getting a lot of attention today. The message is getting out. It might be snippets of the message. Is, is there a danger there that all people are going to hear is John Horgan calling out this group and not perhaps what are other parts and important parts of that message? Yeah, but it's certainly an issue. I mean, the other thing to say, of course, is this is a massive group of people from the age of 20 to 39. Um, what you're doing when you're 20 versus um, the people maybe in their 30s who might be parents with young kids in schools, right? And the sort of implication of, of the comment was that these were young people going out to party, but the ages of 20 to 39, there's substantial life changes that happen in those 19 years. So I'm not sure we can, you know, attribute one thing versus the other and just bear in mind how different uh, the different people are within that group itself. And there is then, of course, a a danger that, for example, those who are parents in that group will think, well, what about my kids at school? And the message about masks doesn't get to them um, because the focus is more on this sort of generational conflict being unintentionally stoked by comments like that.
Uh, so what is a better way to, to go about it and to make sure that the message does get out there? And like you, you mentioned, that people aren't blindsided. People uh, don't uh, suddenly hear that restaurant dining rooms are closed and are shocked by that. So there's a couple of things that, that one can do. One is, as I've said, to really try to lay out for people the potential possible paths that one sees ahead. So if we see cases rising, this is probably what we're going to have to do. Um, if cases stay the same, X. If cases start to go down, Y. Um, and we're going to know that within two to three weeks. So try to give people a bit of a sense of what might be coming so that they can really plan for the future and it's not a sort of 11th hour thing that ends up happening. So that's one aspect. Another is thinking about greater data transparency, um, of course, without um, revealing people's identities, but maybe giving the public a bit more of a sense of how the spread is happening so they feel greater confidence in uh, some of the, the things that are being claimed about transmission. It can help those who really want to dig into the data. And then the final thing is recognizing that um, the vast majority of the group that John Horgan was calling out is probably at work at 1 p.m. <laughs> I have the privilege as a professor who studies this to be watching the press conference, but I recognize that's not true of the vast majority of 20 to 39-year-olds. So thinking about how are you going to reach people on social media and other channels? What clips do you want as the government of BC to be putting out there on uh, Twitter, YouTube, etc.? What other languages do you need to have this in and so on? And we've seen some NDP MLAs going out on their uh, Twitter and elsewhere recording videos. But, but what else can be done um, across a whole host of social media channels to reach people as well with the sort of message that maybe goes beyond that, that couple of sentences from Premier Horgan? All right, uh, Heidi, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for talking about this with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Well, we have been talking about ICBC, not today, but in the past weeks uh, about the switch over to no fault, uh, the decrease in premiums uh, that uh, people who drive, people who have automobiles in this province have been promised, as well as the rebate checks and a bit of a glitch there. We know they've been delayed, but my next guest got one of those rebate checks and that is why we wanted to talk to her on the program today and joining me is sherry o'neill sherry thanks so much for taking the time well thanks jill thanks for uh, having me on well it's just uh as not a huge surprise this is getting a lot of attention you tweeted out a photo of an icbc envelope Uh, you were able to uh, smartly uh, keep the personal information hidden but you wanted to show people that you had your rebate check now when you opened up this check how much was it for it was for one (laughs) dollar yeah and it wasn't a typo it was actually for one dollar it was for one dollar. Yeah, it's just, you know it's written out one dollar and and you know there in the one dollar spot on the check. Yeah, it was uh, it was it's it's totally ridiculous. What did you have an idea or what you were expecting as a rebate? Well, I mean, to me, I mean, I get a forty three percent discount. I'm a good driver and all of that. I have two vehicles. And I pay, you know, close to $400 a month for both those vehicles. So I was kind of thinking, you know, maybe 200 something like that. Um, yeah, but uh, clearly that's not what I've gotten. I, I'm trying to figure out the math quickly in my head, but several times more would have been the postage to put that check in the mail. Well, yeah, I mean, I understand through, um, there's a lot of uh, comments on my tweet there that, uh, you know, ICBC gets a flat rate no matter how much they send out. But, you know, that aside, they have, there's a letter in there, the check is in there, and the envelope is there, and the ink on all of that is there. So, you know, it's, it, to me, it's just not worth sending out $1. 
Uh, ICBC responded online as well. We've also reached out to ICBC. Uh, The response to you was, we are committed to ensuring customers receive all of the savings owed to them. As part of this commitment, we will be issuing refund checks for any amount of $1 or more. And they go on to say, uh, the approach is is changed from our historical practice of not issuing checks for $5 or less. Uh, You responded to that because I think anybody hearing that as well, or many people hearing that, will think that's just a ludicrous amount amount of money to the time and energy to send out a $1 check. Well, exactly. I mean, I stick to the historical thing then, but I don't even, I've been driving for a lot of years and I don't remember the last time we ever got a rebate. So I don't know what they're talking about this $5. I wouldn't even want a $5 check. You know, it's, it's, um, why not, why not create some sort of account for everybody that has insurance that is, eligible for this rebate and when you go to renew your insurance they're like oh sherry look you have one dollar in your account let's apply it to your insurance (laughs) yeah it seems like that would be a bit more efficient (laughs) (laughs) it would be way more efficient and it would be well okay so one dollar is better than nothing i guess but at least you're not going through all that expense and effort to send out a one dollar check that i'm not even going to deposit and I, I wonder, too, how, like you said, you drive two vehicles, you've got the the, the full discount, the 43% discount. Did they give you any idea on how it was calculated that you uh, qualified for a $1 rebate? No, and, and that was, um, I, I think I responded in a, in a tweet there, too, that was, you know, what what is the formula that you use to come up with this amount? It, you know, it... Um, It occurred to me, and I could be right or wrong, but so I've gotten back a really low rebate, but I have a 43% discount. So somebody else tweeted that they got a $400 rebate back. So I'm wondering, how did you get that back? Are you a new driver, so you pay really high premiums? Are you a bad driver, so you pay really high premiums? So maybe these are the groups that are getting back the higher rebates, not the people that have good driving records and big discounts. Yeah, and, and so we kind of yeah, we kind of touched on that when they announced the rebates or the cost savings. What that it did make it so the more you paid, the bigger the discount, the bigger the rebate. So yeah, there would be people in that group that because you're paying a huge amount of insurance, it's because you've either had crashes or you're a new driver or there, there's mm-hmm. a reason why you're paying and you don't have the forty three percent discount. I mean, the devil's advocate of that is well, you've had the discount, you're you didn't pay out the money, so you're not getting the money back. But still, right. a one dollar rebate is a bit bizarre. Yeah, it's just not even worth it, you know. I mean, we didn't, you know, the rebate period, they say, is from April 1st to September 30th. Um, You know, we're in the film industry. We didn't work from March 13th to middle of August. So, I mean, we weren't driving at all. Hmm. Which, I mean, I guess then you might qualify, although probably not if you go back to work then, for the, there's the 10% rebate or discount the next time you uh, uh, renew your insurance if you drive less than 5,000k in one year. Oh gosh, yeah, no. <laughs> that's not us. <laughs> no, I'm guessing in the film industry, that's, that might be just a weekend for you. It, yeah, that's right, exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> How has the whole thing left you? And I know you, you probably put it out there knowing that, that you would get a lot of response and people do like to kind of uh, beat up on ICBC. Oftentimes it is justified. How has this whole uh, kind of situation left you? Uh, well, there's been a lot of interesting tweets back at me. It's, uh, you know, one's calling me a liberal shill. <laughs> so, 
huh. like, okay, as, as I think Linda Steele put it the other day, I'm politically homeless right now. So, um, no, that's not accurate. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of people that are shaking their heads like, yeah, a $1, it's just not worth it. So, you know, uh, what are you going to do with the check? I'm not going to cash it. I I'm just not, it's, uh, you know, I don't know what, what's the point, but you know, that being said, if I'm not the only person getting these $1 or $2 or $3 rebates, what's going to happen to all those uncashed checks? Because this money obviously is allocated to these rebates. So say a, you know, a million people don't cash their $1 or 2 or $3 checks. What's, uh, what do they have planned for that? Uh, yeah. Now, have you got any sense from people that are tweeting back at you or have contacted you saying, hey, I also got a $1 check? Because we're trying to find out from ICBC how many checks have gone out for $1 or less. Or well, I guess technically it wouldn't be less if the threshold is now $1 at the bottom. Uh, but even checks under $5, you're right. A lot of people are not going to take the time to even cash that. So have you got any sense or have people been reaching out to you saying, hey, I got one of these too? No, and I did ask, you know, how much is your rebate check? So maybe a lot of people just haven't gotten them yet. But I did hear word of mouth from someone reputable that someone did receive a check for 89 cents. So whether or not that's true, I don't know. Maybe someone was just making it up. But um, the person that told me is pretty, uh, they wouldn't just make something like that up. Hmm, which would, again, would be below the, the whopping $1 yeah. uh, threshold for being the lowest check. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. But I really, you know, I think ICBC needs to um, put out there what their formula was. Like, you know, that obviously not just one person made this decision. So uh, that's what I would like to see is who made the decision and what's the formula. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of people would like to see that. And like you said, they're just starting to go out. Uh, I, I don't know many people that have gotten them already, but I think once more and more are, are start showing up, that is going to be, people are going to be looking and seeing, and whether it's a dollar, $10, however many dollars, wanting to know what the formula was. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we all want it to be fair, right? So, but I guess, uh, I guess me being a good driver is uh, to my detriment here. <laughs> well, don't stop doing that. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> 30 in the kids zone. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, Sherry, thanks for joining us to talk more about this. Again, we've reached out to, to ICBC and my guess is as more and more of these checks go out, we're going to be hearing uh, from more people, perhaps in similar uh, scenarios. But thanks for joining us on the show today. Oh, well, thanks so much, Jill. Thanks for having me.